in the past, we didn't have to worry about we're at inventory of this, we're at inventory of that. We sold out every last ice cream maker we had. In the past, we always knew we had stock and buffer stock and we never had to drill down. If we knew something was out of stock, it wasn't like 10 or 12 items, it might be one-offs or something. We ended up going from an annual planning phase to quarterly, to monthly, to weekly, to daily. And we spent a lot more time and effort on operational issues, moving inventory to our D2C business. Most people probably know Cuisinart because of the company's kitchen appliances, like the food processor, the air fryer, or the good old coffee maker. Cuisinart's products are everywhere, in kitchens around the world, in retail stores, and yes, online. In the last year or so, Cuisinart has put a much greater emphasis on the D2C part of the business, walking the tightrope of being there for retail partners while also making sure there's enough inventory to meet the demand coming from online. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Mary Rogers, the Director of Marketing Communications for Cuisinart, explains the steps the company took to make the pivot to D2C without leaving retail partners in the lurch. Mary also talks about how the marketing and online strategy planning for products went from being planned out months in advance to now changing from one day to the next. Daily planning. Now that is intense. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to our weekly e-commerce newsletter at mission.org slash upnext in commerce. It's amazing. It's great. You will learn a lot of good things. Go subscribe. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Mary Rogers, who currently serves as a director of marketing communications at Cuisinart. Mary, welcome. Hi, I'm so glad to be here today and join you. I'm really excited about talking all things marketing. Yes, I cannot wait. So I'd love to kind of, before we get into Cuisinart and your role there, I want to hear a bit about your background and how you even entered the world of housewares and cookware and all of that. So back in the day, um, I actually worked for um, a retailer and I worked in the housewares department and I kind of went up through the ranks there getting to the level of like assistant DM. And so that wasn't my favorite thing is it was involving a lot of like scheduling people and logistics. And, and that was kind of my foray into the home goods area. And then I also did work for publisher for a short period of time because my background was basically 
um, literature and journalism up to that point when I was studying in college. And then I transitioned into marketing at that point in the publishing world. Very cool. And when did you get introduced to the role at Cuisine Art? So I worked for um, a company who was much more of a legacy company. I worked for a company called Barberware. They were really well known. Yep. They had a manufacturing facility in the Bronx. And, you know, they basically did everything there. We did product development, engineering. It was a really great learning experience. Uh, I worked for another company called Dansk, who is now owned by Food52. They just bought them recently. Cool. And my my boss there went to Farberware and he asked me to join him there. And then that got sold and dismantled in the um, in 96. And I had always had Cuisinart on my radar. I thought it was a really great up and coming young kind of um, small organization that I felt had a lot of growth potential, which turned out to be true. And so um, I actually reached out to them. Um, and I, I didn't know it at the time, but they were looking to fill a, a marketing communications position for quite a long time. Their previous person in the job had left. Mm -hmm. So I kind of was like the only candidate, <laughs> but they loved my background and obviously my experience in, in housewares and also the fact that I had pretty deep product development experience. That wasn't the direction I, I wanted to go in like permanently. I mean, I'm glad I know that process and I've done it, but um, my, my, my real expertise is marketing communications. So it's really interesting because when I joined in 96, as you can imagine, was very, um, they really hadn't done any real marketing, mm -hmm. um, you know, not much advertising, not, you know, they just really were kind of scrappy entrepreneurs. I kind of think of ourselves as that still today, and but for different reasons. So obviously, as you can imagine, over time, things have changed dramatically mm -hmm. compared to when I first started, when we were so focused on things like, you know, print advertising, and, you know, and we matured into things like understanding the value of TV advertising. You know, I actually built a model for the company to show them the impact of TV advertising on sales and, and trajectory um, that you can get from that. Mm -hmm. And so we forayed into that and kind of really started building out strength in multiple channels and not just one. I also like to say, like, I consider myself a modern day marketer because there are so many things you have to be like, not just aware of, but, but understand mm -hmm. now that you didn't then, you know, it was kind of like back in the day, like you knew what the impact was on business, but now you really know what it is because you have like hard data. Yeah. Where in, in the past, you know, you would rely on your retailers or sell through retailers. And so things are much, much more sophisticated now. And you also have many different avenues to test in, test and learn too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like too, over the past couple of years, I mean, especially the past year, I'm sure everything's had to be rethought, replanned and planning cycles kind of go out the window, you know, annual plans turn into quarterly, turn into daily and how did you guys adapt to that, you know, the changing consumer preferences of all of a sudden people are at home, they're cooking, they, you know, need all the things to make the recipes. And I'm sure a lot of things had to change on your side as well to kind of keep up with that. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges we had in the last basically year and a half, um, the challenges are similar now, but for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So basically, we keep our eye on trend very closely on trends. And, you know, when I get up in the morning, I'm reading all kinds of, you know, articles and information and just everything changes on the dime now, you know, so you kind of have to be on top of it all the time. But 
we also started to hear things from our retailers. Like they were looking for goods that they maybe weren't looking for before, Mm -hmm. like bread makers, waffle makers, more coffee makers, coffee grinders, you know, because people, you know, in during the time when lots of places were closed, they needed, you know, they still wanted a great cup of coffee. They had to make it for themselves basically. So what happened for us was, I'm really very proud of our team on this because it took a lot more effort because in the past, you know, we didn't have to worry about like, we're at inventory of this, we're at inventory of that. You know, we sold out every last, you know, ice cream maker we had Mm -hmm. Um, in the past. We always know we knew we had stock and buffer stock and we never had to like drill down. Like if we knew something was out of stock, it wasn't like 10 or 12 items might be one offs Mm -hmm. or something. So we ended up going from an annual planning phase to quarterly to monthly to weekly to daily. And we spent a lot more time and effort on operational issues, just like, you know, moving inventory to our D to C business, which um, became like a whole hoo-ha, but, and then also just making sure that we had inventory, our retailers had, we at least had certain amount of retailers that had inventory of an item. And with every marketing program we did, we did that. So it took a lot of juggling. We had to push things out. We had to keep our eye on incoming inventory when it was going to be available, when retailers were going to have it. And so it became it became very tactical mm-hmm. to me, completely honest with you. Like something that you know you think is like you're strategic, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day, you can have all the strategy you want if you don't have the goods, yeah. right? And we also, I personally noticed this with um, some of our retail partners because a lot of the retail partners in the very beginning went into complete shutdown, they shut the stores down, right? But they also, they can't easily turn things off. And so they were like running campaigns for things they had no product, which is the one thing that makes me crazy Yeah, is to know people are spending time, money, effort, and resources marketing something that you can't sell because mm-hmm. you're not going to convert if you don't yeah. have it. You, get, you know, so the, whatever data you do get is not going to be very valuable at all. And then it becomes history, right? Mm-hmm. So you look back at that, at that program and you're like, well, we di- it didn't do well. And then you have to remember all the things around it that happened, that yeah. the reason why it didn't do well. And then you just wasted a lot of, a lot of effort for no benefit. So when thinking about a daily planning process, what were some of the key lessons when you look back, you're like, oh, this would have helped make it easier. And would you, are you still doing that today right now? Because that sounds insane, like looking every day at the trends and hearing from the market and being like, oh, people want this. And now it's shifting here and we need a marketing campaign around this and also getting all the back end right and making sure that you've got the inventory and it's all tied together. How would you set it up today? And would you still advise on you know daily planning processes? Yeah. So I would say to you, it's not the way we like to do things, Yeah, <laughs> um, but it was just like, we just didn't want to be spending time, money, and effort on something that wasn't going to produce for us. Mm-hmm. So we felt it was necessary. And I would, I would still do it today, you know, because I mean, we are nimble. So the fact that we could say, Hey, you know, bread makers are doing really well right now. Let's make sure we're making people aware that we have bread makers and we're selling them. And, you know, I mean, that was not that big of a challenge for us, mm-hmm. but when we ran out of bread makers, we had to say, I had to say, you know, to our team, I'm like, well, you know what, even though you don't have a bread maker, you can still mix dough in a food processor, you know, or you can use one of our stand mixers. And so change the storyline basically, mm-hmm. and look at it from a different direction. 
Or the other thing we did is when there was a yeast shortage, start giving people ideas on other things that you can make that don't have yeast, you know, without having to go into the whole sourdough trend, you know, which you got to not exactly making bread today, right? Making do with what you got and just shifting the storyline. I mean, because I think of the amount of searches I've always put in to be like the replacement for soy sauce, a replacement for eggs and really leaning into that trend of being like, we can't help you here. However, you don't even need that thing. And now maybe you do need it. Like, how do you get your team thinking in that kind of mindset? Because I'm imagining when you come to, you know, daily planning processes, you really have to like decentralize the entire team structure to kind of let them make these quick moves and their own campaigns and, you know, setting them free to do what they know is best. Yeah. So, I mean, my style, my leadership style is not, I'm not a micromanager. I don't believe in micromanagement. My, my personal belief is that when you empower your team to own their business, they're more committed to it. And so that's the approach I take, but I am definitely involved in, you know, all aspects of the business and guiding them in those ways, you know, trying to help them think a little bit differently about their approach. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, they're the ones coming up with the, the alternative content based on those comments. You know, I'm not the one doing that. You know, I'm, I'm definitely letting them own all of that themselves. And, you know, we work with a lot of external agency partners. So we work really, really closely with them and they are also working with each other. So it's not, it's not a siloed system. Basically all our agency partners know each other. You know, we are really good at making sure that we're having constant lines of communication open based on whatever's happening in our business. And also, you know, down to any aspect of marketing that we're, that we're um, using to promote product. And then the only thing I would other say is that you had asked me earlier about like what's changed compared to last year. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, I'm sure you've heard that the marketplace, the supply chain marketplace is still highly disrupted, but for different reasons yeah. now. So the reasons now are basically raw material shortages, huge increases in the price of containers, cost of containers. And, you know, most people in our cat in the durable goods category, they are bringing goods into the country. And then a lot of people are spending time trying to diversify their supply chain in order that they're not heavily reliant on one point of reference for their goods. Mm-hmm. But that's also something that not that can't happen like overnight. That's something that has to be let's long-term, right? That's a long-term position. But we're already hearing in the marketplace that some competitors are basically not going to have inventory of certain items. They're just not, it's not going to happen. So we also then look at those opportunities and try to capitalize on those opportunities. Because if we do have supply of similar product in the same category, you know, we are going to try to help out our retailers and make sure that we get them supply um, to fill those holes for them. And so we're our team, um, you know, we have a decent sized planning team that work really closely with the division heads to make sure that they're focusing on the items that, you know, have the greatest need. So how do you create a open conversation with retailers or other partners to figure out what they're missing? Because it, it seems like in a way, once you would structure a partnership where they're like, oh, you always give me bread makers. That's what I know you for. I would think that they wouldn't think like, oh, I should share that I also need this, this, and this because there's so tunnel vision on like my partner does this with me. So how do you even go about developing that relationship where they will say, here's some gaps right now in you know inventory that we just can't get. Can you help us? 
Yeah, I mean, that happened last year. So those conversations were had over, you know, over the last year and a half. And our sales team works very closely with their retail partners. And so they're having those conversations on an ongoing basis. So, and, you know, it also helps out our retailers and it also instills us as, you know, making sure that we're helping them protect their business too, because I'm sure you realize this, like if you went around six months ago and you went into some of the retail establishments, you know, you would see you would see empty shelves. Mm-hmm. You would see big places in like the home goods area where there was like yeah. not a not a not a lot to, you know, purchase in person. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those those things are ongoing for us because we also, you know, we also work really close with them planning ahead because encouraging them to make sure that they get their forecasting, you know, done months in advance so that we can buy against that forecast and protect their orders um, so that they have good supply, especially as we go into the back half of this year, which, you know, for us, my team calls it our Super Bowl, because that's, that's a really, you know, that's our, our peak season, basically. And so we want to make sure that all, kind of all the stars align. And, you know, our marketing is, is pushing um, the items that, that we can focus on, but we also make sure that, like I said, inventory is essential for us. Mm-hmm. Love that. So is there, Anything like any big bets that you guys have made or that you're implementing right now, especially around supply chain or something that's just totally different than how you used to do things. And you're not really sure about the outcome, but you think you're ahead of the game. Cause I, I've heard a lot of people come on the show and talk about this is a big issue and there's room for disruption, you know, in the whole logistics and supply chain and warehousing and all of that. But I haven't heard many people be like, we are doing it this way now and it's working, or we're going to explore it this way. And we think there might be opportunity around adjusting these things. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, I have those conversations all the time. It's like, okay, we need to get our fall marketing plan, like locked down because, you know, and you know, this It's like, it's not something you turn on in a day, mm-hmm. you know, it has to be, you know, those big campaigns, um, you know, tentpole type things are planned months in advance. And so I'm, I was already having those conversations, you know, a month ago, basically like, these are the items I think we should focus on, but I also need to have confidence that we can have product, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, we honed in on the items that we're pretty sure that we can generate demand, but also have appropriate supply of goods. And we're also making sure that we are doing some other things which involve our retailers, like aligning our retailers so that they are working on the same in the same playbook we are because you know it's I call it compounding interest that's kind of how I look at it I tell our sales team look you if you are smart you would take advantage of this this is what we're working on and we're very transparent about it with our retail partners and our sales team because you know the more we're all pushing in the same direction you know we're going to be more successful and so and we're we're also doing a lot of other things like digital audits and making sure that our digital sell shelf, not just for ourselves, but for our retail partners are clean and tidy and neat and, and organized the right way. And, and um, they have the right data specs and content and all of the things that they need to make sure that they're successful on their side. So it's not just about the marketing that we're doing, mm-hmm. but it's the support that we provide to the sales team and the retail partners that, you know, extend basically. And um, like I said, I call it compounding because for every other, every one of those partners I can get like in line, the more powerful the campaigns are across the board. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? 
Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. I definitely understand that of like, why wouldn't you all be kind of rowing towards the same, you know, endpoint if you guys are having a big campaign push, why wouldn't they also kind of invest in the same thing instead of having diverse efforts? How, like, what are some of the biggest gaps that you see on retailer websites when you're saying, you know, you want to make sure it's clean and tidy, they have all the right information. Like, what are some big missing pieces that when you go in and you do your digital audits, you're like, ah, once again, you're missing this or you're doing it this way. And, you know, we know that it's best to do it this way. Cause I'm sure you're not the only one who, you know, is struggling or finds those kind of things on the retailers' websites. Yeah. So basically our focus has been um, along naming conventions and search. Those are the two things that we've put a lot of effort into. So, you know, on-site search for retailers, you know, every retailer could be using a different partner for search or self-developed search or what, however they're doing it, it's just that could be different for every retailer. So those, that's been a big focus for us. And then the other thing too, is making sure that any content that we're developing much more so in in the lifestyle area, that we are making that content available for all of our retailers and, you know, sharing out because that's become, you know, every retailer has different specifications. Like I want seven lifestyle images and I want this and I only take this size and I only take that size and just the whole logistics end of it. Because as you know, retailers are not like developing content for every product that they sell Mm -hmm. on their digital shelf. They're not doing that. They're repurposing content. Yeah. I mean, how do you know first if they're using it, like using it in the correct way? And also, do you see them putting their own spin on it? Because there's been a few times when I've seen, you know, maybe I go to Cuisinart and I'm like, oh, that was an epic video product placement. I just associate it with you guys potentially. And then maybe I go to, I don't know, Home Goods and same content. Then I go to Macy's, same content. And then you start being like, wait, who started this content? I've seen that happen a few times with brands where they're all reusing the same stuff. Are you encouraging your partners to kind of, you know, repurpose it, put your own spin on it, put your own voice on it, like use it how you see best fit? Or are you just like, here's the box that you need to work within? Yeah. So um, how we protect ourselves against that is we develop our own custom content for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's how we set ourselves apart. You're the original. You like launch it and then you're like, here you go. So yeah, instead of, because I'm sure you realize this is like, you know, duplication of that, you know, it doesn't necessarily help with um, SEO related things. So, you know, know, retailers have so many products and they're so big, Mm -hmm. you know, when you think about like what one retailer, how many SKUs they have online versus, you know, an in-store environment, you know, they're heavily reliant on brands Mm -hmm. to use that content. They're, They're just not going to develop that themselves. The the sheer amount of resources that they need to do that is, is it's not going to happen basically. And obviously we've put more emphasis on it ourselves because not only do they need the content, but we need more content ourselves because we're not just using the content on our website. We're developing it for social, for digital, for, for every avenue, for work that we do through our PR agency, you know, it's used in every channel. Mm -hmm. But like I said, the way that we differentiate in that area is that 
we are also developing custom content for ourselves. And we do also have retailers that they will, you know, change up their hero copy and this and that. I mean, you know, when we do those audits, we also make sure that the information is is correct mm-hmm. and they don't go off the, the deep end. Yep. Yep. I can imagine there being a lot of value in what they're seeing on their side around the kinds of content that's working. Maybe they're getting some kinds of content from you in one way and then different styles from another brand. Is there any data sharing there where they give feedback of like, oh, we see, you know, this toothbrush brand doing this and it's working really well. Like our customers like this. Do they ever kind of share that feedback and then help you rethink the kind of content that you all are headed or going to create? Yeah, you know, interesting. That has never happened. But what we have done ourselves is that, you know, we obviously keep our eye on what content performs best. Mm-hmm. And then we produce more of that type of content. Yep. So, um, you know, like most brands, user-generated content mm-hmm. tends to perform much better. You know, we work with a lot of influencers um, who obviously build custom content for us. And, you know, that's that's the stuff that... Um, performs much better than I'm not saying our stuff doesn't perform, but in comparison, it's also somebody it's, it's, it's brand appropriate, has like the proper brand essence to mm-hmm. it, but, um, consumers like to see other people's, you know, material and, yeah. and they gravitate towards it. Yeah. Are there any big bets that you all are making in marketing campaigns or content that you're like, this might not pay off or this could be taken the wrong way, but we're going for it. You know, not, I mean, not really in that sense, but in the sense of social shopping, we're mm-hmm. putting more of a focus on social shopping and, and being able to track that. And we also just launched a campaign and, you know, we had positive ROI on it. So, you know, that's where everything's going, right? It's like making sure you have a positive ROI that, that you are testing and learning and um, being able to quantify, you know, it's the world, it's a you know, that's the benefit of the digital world, right? You can actually see the results of your efforts and what they produce. So earlier you mentioned influencers and that's something on the show that I've heard a lot of mixed reviews around of, you know, what's an influencer, like who actually classifies as that? When does it deliver results? And how, how are you guys going about finding the right influencers and partnering in a way that you get a long-term ROI? We've been working in this area for quite a long time. We don't focus on like celebrity celebrity influencers. That's not our thing. Mm-hmm. We are most interested in aesthetic and brand alignment and also the fact that like our consumers are very um, oriented around food and food is a big part of their life. And um, they're very interested in, you know, recipe ideas and things like that. You know, we've developed an entire set of guidelines for influencers and also for any any work that we're doing in social media mm-hmm. for ourselves and for our licensed partners. And um, we have also over time found a few influencers that we've had ongoing partnerships with instead of mm-hmm. one-offs. And I'm sure, you know, like the lot of, I'm sure a lot of people that you talk to talk about like where this is going, where the influencer marketing field is going, because obviously there's a lot more brands using mm-hmm. it in comparison to even one or two years ago. It also, when you get into that situation, you can, you know, be driving up pricing and a few other things. And, you know, those are all obviously concerns for everybody. And then also the fact that you also want to have separation with competitive brands, you know, which is a big concern. 
we stay on top of all, all of that. We're not using, we're not currently using like a platform to vet influencers. We don't do that. Um, we work with our PR agency, Magrino, and they are basically doing the research and handpicking appropriate influencers. I mean, they know our guidelines and they know um, what we're looking for. And we also work with the influencer and, and also get their stats from them and making sure that they're in line. We also get contacted by a lot of people directly through our social channels or even just through email, you know, um, wanting to partner with us. You know, we explore all those opportunities. But at the end of the day, it also has to align with with our needs and our guidelines and also the needs of our consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've heard quite a few brands saying like anyone can be an influencer essentially. And it's not the big celebrities of the world anymore. It's anyone who has even, you know, a couple thousand followers. If those followers are engaged and ready to buy, are you kind of seeing those more like the micro influencers working better than just like you said, you don't even go for celebrities. So what do you look for when you're trying to find someone who's going to be a good fit for the brand and also, you know, deliver good results? Yeah. I mean, we're our biggest our biggest thing is engagement. That's what we're, mm-hmm. that's what we are interested in. We're interested in engagement. We also have a certain level of followers that we're interested in. Um, not, you know, in the small thousands, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, those are all key vetting points for us. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, we check their handle, make sure that the work that they're doing is aligned with what our consumers want to see also. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to see like overly promotional, you know, we want to see some separation. We also want to see, you know, like I said, engagement is a key factor for us too. Yeah. And it seems like that's where the world as a whole is headed around organic content, you know, authentic UGC, not the way that it used to be even just a couple of years ago around, you'd see a channel, wherever it was and being like, oh, obviously their whole goal here is just to sell, sell, sell. I rarely see that working anymore. And if you see people doing that, they quickly start falling down the ranks of why am I even here? If you're just selling this one hair care product the entire time, and there's no other content, I don't feel connected with that. So it seems like everything is kind of shifting in that direction. Yeah, it definitely is. And people want to be inspired. Mm-hmm. That's why they're, that's why yeah. they're on these channels. Yeah. You know, um, they want to be inspired. They want to, they want to educate themselves. A lot of times, you know, people are very um, visually inspired. And I happen to be like, I happen to study Italian. So I'm like very, you know, oriented. I follow a lot of people in Italy and cookbook authors and things like that. And, you know, I'm there to learn. I'm there to be inspired by by their knowledge and the recipe ideas. And it just matters what the consumers, you know, passionate about, right? And that's what you have to deliver to them. They're, they don't want to be hammered over the head every day with like, buy my blah, blah, blah. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's not why they're there. And then, as you said, what happens is like over time, they tune out. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any, what maybe some would call competitors that you'd be open to kind of being shown up against? Because I see that kind of, you know, being a world where, you know, you're like, oh, I really want this influencer. They're really big in the food scene, but they also, you know, use a semi-competitor product. Are you all okay with that? Or are you like, oh, it has to be, you know, semi-exclusive or you can't feature other competitors on your channel as well? Yeah, we wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that? That's a hard <laughs> no. We're, we're too competitive. Yeah. Hey, I like it. That's great. Yeah, I mean, we even we even go to the point where like we, when you're taking photos and we don't want to see competitive product in a photo. Yeah. You know, I, I assume people over time also do, do the same thing. But yeah, we 
we're very competitive. We want to see separation. Mm -hmm. We don't want to see, we don't want to work with somebody who is like, you know, been all over every competitor known to man. And Hey, I, I know for a fact that people probably go on our channel and see who we're working with and use us as a, as a free, you know, Mm -hmm. game for not having to find their own influencers for all I know, you know, and, and, you know, we don't do that. That's kind of the lazy man's way out, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, we don't do that. It's not, not a long game doing it that way. No, it's a short game. And, and the thing is, it's like, if you're in this for the long haul, you're going to do it from a strategic perspective and not a tactical perspective. And to me, that's tactical Mm -hmm. because you're assuming whatever I'm doing is going to work for you. And you know, your brand's a different brand, your brand, your consumers have different needs and wants, like that's what you need to focus on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's putting way too much trust in another team that you don't even know what they're talking about. Yeah, and like, they're you, doing know, like, you don't even know why they're partnering with that person. And the other thing is you don't even know what, what the stats are, mm-hmm. or how it per- produced or how it performed. I mean, no, at the end of the day, you really don't, you know, but, um, yeah. So I, we don't do that. We don't, it's not even in my mindset to be completely honest yeah. with you, yeah. but I'm not saying that other people don't take that tactic. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So earlier you were talking about, you know, creating these shoppable experiences. And I, before the show, I mentioned also headless commerce and you're like, Oh, I mean, is that even a term anymore? We've been doing that forever. I want to kind of hear, you know, what you guys are seeing around what some would still say is kind of a trend. And, you know, we've had some people be like, that's not even a thing or it's here to stay. And I'd love to hear your perspective since you guys are the maybe OGs in this. You've already been doing it. You know, and it was one of those things where we did it for a different reason. <laughs> well, yeah. it was a similar reason, but different. So this is like years ago. We Our shopping cart aspect of our website is completely separate from the web property. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was done like that was that... We were working with a fulfillment company. We've been selling direct to consumer for years and years. It's just that we used a fulfillment company. Consumer had the shopping experience on our website, but the orders were sent to a fulfillment organization. They fulfilled them. And the cons- we kept the consumer in our ecosystem because you wanted to be able to, I wanted to be able to own the data. Mm-hmm. So this was like more like forward thinking. Like, you know, now this is like yeah. all the trend. People are like, first party data, first party data, but that's how I protected my first party data years ago. And so, and in a way, thank God I did it because when we wanted to bring the D2C business back in-house in late 2018, I didn't have to restructure my entire website. I basically just had to plug in a shopping cart basically yeah. at that point. And then um, last year, in the middle of the year, we transitioned our entire web property to um, EpiServer. It's a DXP and um, still kept the shopping cart separate. And what we ended up doing was we made as much of the site CMSable as possible so that the marketing team can virtually do any day-to-day operation mm-hmm. that we need to change a price, add a new product build a landing page. You know, we, we just finished um, building out like blocks so that we can build custom landing pages. We, we can literally do anything ourselves. And so the idea was we wanted to be a masters of our own domain, basically, because in our previous situation, we used one web development company and they did everything for us. And unfortunately, like over time, you know, 
as the brand became more mature, it didn't make sense for us anymore because we really needed experts. We needed experts in SEM, SEO. We needed, you know, experts in web development and, you know, the latest best platform to use. And we also wanted to be more in control of our business. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have to open a ticket with IT and, you know, the SVP emails me saying, Hey, I think you guys have, I think we changed the price on blah, blah, blah. Can you fix it on the website? I'm like on the fly, do it in 10 seconds, you know, not even. So, you know, this way we're in control of our destiny. Basically we're not, we're not heavily reliant on any one thing or what any one agency or, Mm -hmm. and this way also, if we decide to change agencies, we're, we're not stuck and um, that's that's one of the things that is really important for us and for our business um, and not having to get in line at the deli stand. And, you know, no, seriously, it's like I'm I say I'm a point A to point B person. Like I don't want to have to go through five people to do something. I want to be able to control um, control my destiny and the destiny of the company and the brand. And that's how I look at it. And that's how. You know, it's more work for us because now instead of dealing with one agency, we're dealing with multiple agencies, mm-hmm. but that's what's best for the company. And that's what's best for the brand. Because when you get to a certain level, you need to be reliant on experts in the field. And this is where vertical integration is not necessarily the best thing for your mm-hmm. business. Um, and it, so it depends. Like I know some people are like all up for vertical integration, but what happens over time is when you're not continually developing those people and making sure they stay best in mm-hmm. class and they only have one client, you get denigration over time, basically, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, there's no incentives to keep doing better and better if you're getting paid the same amount to essentially, if you can make it less work. And I mean, and they're not going out to the market and shopping it and doing RFPs. They're like, this is our, right. This is what we got right here. I'm doing a flatline thing for anyone. Obviously he's like, what's Steph doing with her hand? Um, but I mean, I also think about it's the, company, like the age of the company and, you know, where they're at in that life cycle. And it seems like it always kind of starts with, you know, you've got the founders and then it's very dispersed and you're hiring all these agencies and, you know, I need social, I need this, I need that. And it's all over the place. And then you start to bundle it back up again and bring things in house. At what point do you think that companies should start considering pulling things back in house, you know, controlling their own destiny a bit more and not relying on, you know, just one or two agencies to control what's happening and where they have to wait in line at the deli stand, as you'd say. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on your business because for where we are and our, where the brand is now, it's more important for us to be working with what I call best in class. Mm-hmm. The thing is, unless your organization is continually investing in talent, adding headcount and all those things that not ca- companies are not necessarily you know, the sheer amount of people you need to keep that train running is probably unreasonable. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for, for me, I can't even imagine us bundling this all back and bringing it in-house. I just think our needs are, are greater than that mm-hmm. at this point. Um, but I'm not saying it'll never happen. You know, things change every day, right? But at the end of the day, in my experience, when you have some some types, some of these in-house organizations, it slows down your business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's slow. It's like, here's a common service area and you all, there's like nine divisions and we all have to use the yeah. same point of entry and get in line. And it's like, 
things never happen. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like the slow boat. It's not easy. And the other thing too, is what ends up happening sometimes with organizations is like, no, let's have so-and-so do it. And they have no expertise. They have no experience. They have no knowledge. And so that person's not really the right one to be there, but Mm -hmm. you know, they're handed the thing and, and it's not necessarily the best, you know, outcome. So for me right now, I, I'm not intending on rebundling and the sheer, sheer lift on that would be insane. You know, I think it also lets the team go and hire too, which I love. I mean, the teams being able to find a cool vendor and find a cool like agency to work with that maybe, you know, executives would have never had time to even stumble on. I mean, that's how we even got our start with Salesforce was one team within Salesforce betting on us and being like, let's try this company. It's small, but you know, they want to make a podcast. Let's, let's go for it and, you know, partner with them and just getting that one opportunity to then spread within the company and do a good job and prove yourself. I think that's how a lot of innovation can happen by just letting the teams, you know, go and source those cool opportunities or companies to partner with. And the other thing too, is you have to remember when you're working with agency partners, they have other clients mm-hmm. that you learn from. Mm-hmm. They're bringing you ideas that they've seen possibly be successful with other clients and other ca- in completely different industries. And so, you know, there's a lot of like built-in advantage there, right? There's built-in knowledge, there's built-in advantage. I also think that they understand our business. Like we're teaching them over time, our business. And so they're invested in it, you know, they're invested in making sure we're successful and we're doing the same. I think sometimes when you vertically integrate the motivations may be different. There's maybe not necessarily that hunger over time. Right. And so, um, depending on what that situation's like internally depends on how successful that is. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, totally agree. Love it. All right, well, let's shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Mary? I'm ready. All right, so pull out your crystal ball. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? I think social selling. Yeah, tell me a bit more. What are you thinking? Well, because it's a new channel, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's getting to the point where you know, we have ways to prove it out. It's definitely, it's definitely, you know, a new area. When I look at um, statistics and in, in social selling, it's like, you know, the last year, you know, I think it's like 50 some percent of the consumers bought something off social, off a social channel. I mean, that's a big, that's a big opportunity as far as I'm concerned. Yep. That's where I source a lot of everything by Instagram, TikTok. I'm like, oh, cute shirt, cute outfit. Need that. <laughs> that makeup set. You said that's good. Okay. I trust you. Yeah. I definitely agree on that. What is your favorite Cuisinart product outside of the air fryer? (laughs) That is by far my favorite product, but I have several. We have a product called the Griddler, which we've had in the line for a really long time. We have a couple of new versions of it. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, now I'm going to go into the pitch. Do it it up. (laughs) It's an indoor grill. It has, um, basically can take you from breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It has reversible plates. It can be, you can make a panini. And the great thing about it is the plates go right in the dishwasher. So you you make make a, a meal in minutes and there's little cleanup. So that's another one of my favorite products. And I couldn't start my day without my Cuisinart single serve coffee maker. We have multiple coffee makers in this house, but you know, don't judge me. I happen to work for a company that 
makes a lot of great ones, but um, we use the single serve when we're in a hurry, but we also use a grind and brew when we want to linger over a pot. So um, definitely coffee would be, you know, can't start my day without it. Wow. So many products I need to invest in. I don't even know where to start. It's great. What is one brand that you watch that helps you kind of stay creative or innovative, or you kind of keep an eye on what they're doing? And it does not have to be in the cookware industry. Of course, it can be very different keep my eye on a lot of companies. So it's hard to distill down. And I would say a lot of them are not in, I mean, not that I don't keep track of my competitors, believe me, I do, but, um, I would say Peloton's one of them Mm -hmm. just because of, you know, I mean, they've know they've been in the news a lot lately, but not because that's not my reasons. Um, the community aspect of it, I think it's, the product is really about, it's not really about the physical product. So I think that's really cool. Obviously, Apple, who doesn't keep their eye on mm-hmm. Apple? I would also say Amazon because, you know, they're into everything. There's every day I open, open the news yeah. and I'm like, what don't they do basically? Uh-huh. So I would say that that's, that's a few of them. Then I also keep my eye on a lot of startups, yeah. um, small startups, yeah. you know, and the food, especially in the food industry right now, I really love what's going on in, you know, plant-based food and, um, you know, there's so many food startups out there. I really am very intrigued by the work that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. We just did a whole episode two on why your best ideas can come from looking outside your industry and how that's a lot of, you know, innovations happen, especially when you have like a similar problem that maybe has already been solved. If you're thinking like, oh, I have something around, you know, employees and this and how to set it up and I'm in the food industry. Let me go look at the, I don't know, space industry and see how they think about this or even military or something. How do they do team structures? And yeah, it was very interesting to think about, yeah, how other industries can influence creativity and solving problems. Yeah. The other thing too, is I, what I think about is like, you know, there's so much work going on in the plant-based food business. It's like, there's so many competitors. It's, you know, the same thing with like meal kits, Mm -hmm. like at some point consolidation has to happen. But the other reason I keep my eye on that is like, we have to be as, as people who make appliances, we have to be helping our consumers understand how to actually prepare those foods, yep, right? When yep. they get at home and they're using our equipment. And if you just look at conventional meats versus, um, you know, grass-fed versus organic, they all cook differently. Mm-hmm. So um, there's there's some work that has to be done there to educating the consumer. So that's another reason why I keep my eye on, mm-hmm. on the food industry and just food in general, just it's changing so fast. And also um, people have much more, is such a, interest in ethnic foods and discovering new foods. And, and there's an entire process of what happens to consumers when they travel somewhere and taste something new and try to re- recreate it at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I keep my eye on all those types of things. Yep. All right. And the last question, what one thing do you not understand today that you wish you did? Well, Bitcoin. Yeah. Please. I've had so many people say that on the show. Cryptocurrency. I don't get it. And after watching Elon Musk on Saturday Night Live, I still don't know anything. <laughs> Man, I think this is just going to push me to uh, start a crypto podcast because so many commerce guests have said that and trying to figure out figure it out and how it's going to impact their work or their point of sale systems or payments or any of that and or even supply chain, which I think it's going to have a huge impact on. But yeah, it's interesting. It's like because I think I'm smarter than the average duck. And I just cannot follow that at all. It's not that I haven't tried, but like I definitely needed education there. And I'd appreciate if you help me with that. All right. I will find a sponsor. Anyone come on in, sponsor the show. I'll get it going. And Mary's going to be my first guest to ask all the questions. 
I'm there. (laughs) All right, Mary. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure chatting. Where can people find out more about you and Cuisinart? So you can find more about Cuisinart at Cuisinart.com. So um, follow us on all the social channels under Cuisinart, except for on TikTok. It's Cuisinart Official which we're just starting oh. that right now. So yeah, we're, we're um, testing the water. be air frying all the things on there, I bet. That'll do, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that'll be hot on that channel. <laughs> we just started. So we're just getting, uh, getting our feet wet. But, um, and then you can follow me on LinkedIn. It's Mary Rogers, um, easy to find. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great being with you today. It was a, it was a lot of fun. everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnext in commerce. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Upnext in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.